Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right. It is a great joy for me to be with you this morning and to be able to share the Word of God and to focus on Christ as uh, we gather together. I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. That uh, will be the focus of our time this morning. Matthew chapter 1. As we enter a season in which we celebrate the coming of Christ. Johnny had asked me if I could uh, preach on on Christ's incarnation. I know that you're going through the Gospel of Luke right now. And uh, I told him, I I don't have anything out of Luke, but uh, I have something out of Matthew. So hopefully it'll, it'll minister to your souls this morning. Matthew chapter 1, and let's begin reading in verse 18 as we read one account of the birth of Christ, our Savior. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we gather this morning, and as we gather around you, Lord, we We cry out to You and pray that Your Spirit would come. And Lord, that He would first of all enable me to speak. To speak by the power that He alone gives. That Lord, I would make Your Word clear. That I would communicate Your Word with a love for You and a love for Your people. And Lord, that you would give your spirit that together you would anoint our hearts to look on this event 
which took place, an event which we are so familiar with, but an event which is so amazing. Lord, you would be our teacher. That we would look into your word and you would minister to our hearts, Lord, as, as you came from heaven to earth, as you humbled yourself in order to rescue us, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be warmed, that our hearts would, would be amazed that you would do such a thing for us. Lord, teach us through your word that we might come to love you more and to believe in your word more strongly. And so we, we ask for your presence and we ask for your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew is, is a, a unique testimony, an eyewitness testimony to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It talks about a great theme from the Scriptures, which is the kingdom of God. If you read through Scriptures, you see this theme from beginning to end as, as God communicates to us that He has a kingdom that is above every other kingdom. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. Because he, he wants to point us upward. He wants to point us heavenward. He wants to point us to the God of heaven. Because God has created us for another world. He has created us for Him. And He has created us for His glory. Sadly, because of our own sin, and, and every one of us has turned away from, from God because of this sin. We have sunk to believing that cars and careers and, and houses and, and things will somehow satisfy our lives. But you and I know because of the work of God, None of these things satisfy. Amen? They don't. Even the best. Even the best of these things. Never truly satisfy. Every one of us has, has experienced that discontentment. That, that grief in our heart that I'm missing something. And, and I know for, for each of us, you know, we, we think, okay, what I need is... is Maybe a, a new relationship. What I need is a new job. Maybe what I need is the, that house on the, the lake shore. And we pursue those things. And as we put our hands around those things, again, we experience this discontentment. Praise God that He is a great Savior. That He has sent His Son to come and rescue us. This morning I want to talk about that rescue mission, which we see in the incarnation of, of Christ, in the, in the birth of, of Christ. Matthew describes for us this supernatural event, this amazing event in which the Son of God 
left heaven, took on the form of a man, and was born here on earth. It is a supernatural event, and and I'd like for us as we consider this text to kind of work through it with these three ideas in mind. First of all, how God makes the straightforward claim that Christ's birth was indeed supernatural. He makes a simple and straightforward claim that Christ's birth is supernatural. And then, as he makes that claim, he gives us evidence to convince us and for those who have come to believe in Jesus Christ to strengthen our faith as he gives evidence of how Christ indeed was supernaturally born here on earth. And so he gives us the evidence, the claim, the evidence. And then finally, there is a very important message in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so I'd like to kind of work through this text considering these these three ideas. The claim, the evidence, and the message. First of all, let's let's look at the simple, straightforward claim of Christ's uh, Christ's supernatural birth. Matthew says, in the beginning of our text, as a matter of fact, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, when she was engaged to Joseph to be married, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. This statement very simply says that Jesus Christ was a real figure in history, that he really was conceived, and chapter 2 tells us he was born here on earth. Don't know if you've looked at the evidence of history, but even the strongest critics of who Jesus Christ is does not deny that he was a true historical figure. No one denies this, not one because there is such strong, compelling evidence that yes, he lived at this time in history and he was a real person. But it's this last statement in the sentence we read that raises all the fuss. Before they came together, in other words, before they had sexual relations, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That is an amazing statement. There is no denying that. But I want us to, as we, before we look at the evidence for this, just to encourage our hearts at how, how strong God has communicated to us and, and revealed to us that this indeed has happened. I want us to consider the importance of our believing this. Because I think in our day, it's, it's easy for us to say, well, you know, that's really not important. And there's actually a tendency for Christian churches to move away from these foundational truths and realities. And so I'd like for us to consider why it is important for us to believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. If Jesus Christ 
is actually God who is taking on the form of a man. The divine would have to take on human flesh in a way that would not violate his divine nature. And there is the critical issue. How can God, how can the Son of God who has eternally existed actually become a human being without violating who he has been for all eternity? Christ needed to be supernaturally conceived and therefore the virgin birth, but also naturally conceived, therefore, through a real woman. Unfortunately, there's a portion of Christianity which exalts Mary unduly so that she is not a real woman but is deified through her own virgin birth. We cannot believe this very simply because if we do, then it eliminates the reality that this was a very real woman who was giving birth supernaturally to the Son of God. So what do we believe? Let me, let me just put it in a, a statement. Our Orthodox faith would confess that as the supernatural conception took place in the womb of Mary, the Son of God, who existed as God for all eternity, was now becoming a true man. So that in the incarnation, Jesus Christ, who was already fully God, was now becoming fully man. Very simply, he became the God-man. This is what we believe if we hold to what the Scriptures say. Now, what we must understand is that Christ's virgin birth is actually essential to our salvation. And I know that this is a bit theological, but that's all right. (laughs) We need to root our faith in sound theology. And there's a reason why we hold to this with all of our heart. The fact that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin is essential to our salvation. Consider this, my brothers and sisters. Because Jesus Christ was fully God, He then is most qualified to come to earth and to reveal who God is to us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, we are told that none of us have seen God. At least I don't think you have, right? I haven't seen God. Anyone here seen God with your eyes? No, none of us have seen God. But the only God as John says in chapter 1, verse 18. He has explained him. He has made him known. And he's qualified to do this because he is eternally God. We also believe that because Jesus Christ was fully God, 
he could bear the full penalty for all the sins of those who believe in Jesus Christ for their forgiveness. If you want to study this in scriptures, look at Hebrews 10, verses 4 through 14. Because Jesus Christ alone was God, he is able to offer a sacrifice that wins our forgiveness. Christ's fullness of deity affects the worth of the sacrifice that was made before God. Now on the other hand, because Jesus Christ was fully man, He could experience our same weakness. I'm glad that He could do that. So often we experience our weakness and our need. And we have a Savior who can fully identify with that struggle. As He knows that, He has become our sympathetic high priest to help us when we're tempted. You ever wonder if, if God is really listening when you're crying out to Him and saying, I just, I can't go through this. I can't handle this. Picture Jesus standing by the throne and saying, I completely understand that. And He went through more than we ever will One example of this is when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the father turned away from the son and the son was alone and we're told that his grief was unto death. It was so great that he felt like he was going to die. Can you relate to that? (laughs) Jesus can relate to you. Because he was fully Man. Also, because he was fully man, he was able to receive God's penalty against our sin, which is what? Death. Which is death. He took our place because he was fully man. And if we put these two things together, then we see from 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 that because Christ was both fully God and fully man, he became our perfect, the perfect mediator between God and, and man. So, this reality that Christ is fully God and fully man is essential to our salvation. The virgin conception of Christ is what God had to do in order to remain fully God and not violate that nature and also become fully man. When Mary was engaged to Joseph, Matthew tells us, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now let's consider the evidence for this because this is an incredible, an incredible event. 
And as we look at our text, we really see two pieces of evidence that ought to encourage our faith as we think of the amazing event of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Two pieces of evidence. One is how Joseph naturally responds to this event. He was not prepared for this in any way. And in our text, we also see that God presents another piece of evidence, which I believe is is given for our sake, given for the sake of those who would live thousands of years after the coming of Jesus Christ, and that is how God predicted hundreds of years before the virgin birth of Christ that there would be a virgin birth of the Son of God. Let's look at the evidence here and consider this and have our faith strengthened by how God has revealed this to us. Read, let's read again verse 19 as we move into Joseph's response. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We're not told precisely how Joseph found out. I expect that after the angel appeared to Mary, not sure of this, but I would expect that after the the angel appeared to Mary and told her that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit without having any relations with with Joseph or any other man, she went to Joseph and said, "I I had the most amazing vision last night. The most amazing dream. God revealed to me that I would conceive, not having relations with you or anyone else, but by the Holy Spirit. We don't know if this is actually what happened, but but here's, here's the deal. When Joseph heard this, and when she was with child and, and grew with child, There was a great conflict which took place in Joseph, I'm sure. As you know, Donna and I have been married for a little over a year, and uh, I am the most blessed man on earth to have this wonderful lady. But I I was thinking of, 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 you know, I, I couldn't use Donna as an illustration because she has five kids. And, And so when we got married, she wasn't a virgin. <laughs> she was, though, when she first got married, and I, I have very high regard for John, who uh, loved Donna in such a way that he kept her pure. I, I think of my own marriage, my first marriage to Cindy, and she also was a virgin, but I, I was thinking, you know, imagine Cindy coming and, and saying, Paul, um, I just want to tell you, I'm expecting. 
and it's by the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking, what kind of conflict I would experience. It's like, okay, I know that our relationship has been pure, so it's not us. But there's one problem. Virgins don't become pregnant. And I, and, and I, you know, I thought about this and I think, okay, I, I know the character of Cindy and I can't imagine that she would have a relationship with a, another man. She was a godly woman. But again, this problem. Virgins simply do not become pregnant. And this was the dilemma which Joseph faced. How could this be? How can this be? These things don't happen. And so he had decided to divorce Mary quietly, quietly because, you know, he just, there was this great dilemma. I don't want to shame Mary, but I can't divorce a woman who obviously is expecting. And as he faced this dilemma, then God intervened. God came giving Joseph a dream. There are visitations and visions and, and dreams. These are ways that God has communicated to his people over the ages. And it was necessary to intervene with Joseph and send an angel and communicate to him, hey, listen, don't be afraid to marry her. What she told you or what you talked about, what, what is obvious, is true. She has conceived by the Holy Spirit. She has had no relations obviously with you or any other man. Go ahead, marry her. Now, <clears throat> this is what I think of. We live 2,000 years after this event. And so how do we know, how do we become convinced that this extraordinary thing actually did happen? And here's where I believe God has given us a second piece of evidence which is very important. And that is, he had spoken that this would happen hundreds of years before the event would take place. Looking at verse 22, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God knew how incredible this event actually is. And he wanted to address our tendency to say, you know what, I'm sorry, but this just doesn't happen. And God wants to say to us, no, it does happen. And I said it would happen. And because I said this would happen hundreds of years before it did happen, you think it could? You think it did? Here's how, here's how it works. In Isaiah chapter 7, we see actually the, the verse that Matthew quotes, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'd like for you to understand the context in which this is communicated. It's one of the lowest times in Israel's history. 
The kingdom had already been divided between north and south. And Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom, technically called Judah. And at this time of Isaiah's ministry, Ahaz was the king. If you look at the line of the kings of Judah, I would, uh, I would probably say that Ahaz was the second worst king that they had. Manasseh, I believe, was the worst, and it led to God finally judging the people of Israel and sending them into captivity under, uh, uh, in Babylon. But, he, but here is Ahaz, and soon after he took the throne after his father, uh, Jotham, he closes the doors of the temple, he stops worship to God, and he sets up all these shrines that worship the Assyrian gods. A very, very low time in Judah's history. And so God comes to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, and, and this is what he does, and, and, and here we see the amazing patience and mercy of God. God sends Isaiah, and Isaiah says, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, it doesn't matter how great it is. I'm ready to deal with your unbelief. So, say what sign would convince you that all these other gods are false gods, and Israel's God is the one true God. Ask for any sign, and I'll do it. And in false piety, Ahaz says, I I couldn't test the Lord. No, no, no. I won't do that. And so the Lord says, I'll give you a sign anyway. And this will be the sign. Now here's the scoop. God sends Isaiah to Ahaz at a time in which Israel is facing some serious enemies. In fact, they were seeing the kingdom of Judah shrink more and more as the northern uh, kingdom of, of Israel made an alliance with Syria to come against the southern kingdom Judah. And as they made this alliance, there were some cities in northern Judah that were being conquered, and they could see that this army was coming against Judah and, and Ahaz was saying, you know what? They're going to they're gonna destroy us. And so I'm going to make an alliance with Assyria. And God is saying, no. <laughs> Don't put your trust in, in that false assurance. Trust in me. And, <clears throat> and so with this prophecy, God says, this is what's going to happen. A virgin is going to give birth to a son. And in the Hebrew, a virgin can refer to a woman who has had no relations with a man or can also refer to a young married woman. We need to understand that. If you study in the Hebrew, both are used for this word virgin. And the virgin referred to in Isaiah's day was Isaiah's wife who was about to conceive a son. And God says, before this son grows up to be old enough to know good and evil and to eat curds, these two enemies which you now face, they will not even exist. 
Ahaz became king of Judah in 735 B.C. And what we know from historical record is that Assyria attacked Syria and destroyed it in 728 B.C. And so that was enemy one, off the scene, destroyed, no longer a threat to Judah. And then in 728, Assyria continued to come down and through the king Tiglath-Pileser I, God destroyed the northern kingdom, took them into exile, and guess what? The two enemies of Israel and the two kings which threatened, uh, threatened Judah, <laughs> they were no longer in existence. God did what He said He would do. Now, we need to understand something very important about prophetic word, especially predictive word. And we see this in a lot of predictive word. First of all, when God comes and sends his prophets, there was a contemporary context. He was dealing with his people of that day. And so oftentimes in prophecy, God would give a predictive word which would help people to come to believe that this person who speaks for God is indeed uh, speaking for God, and the way you know it is he fulfills what he says he's going to do in that day. But there's, n- there's something else that's overarching uh, all of scriptures, and, and we all know what this is. All of scriptures point to one figure, right? And who is that figure? Jesus Christ. That's right. And so, as all of scriptures point to Jesus Christ, We shouldn't be surprised that in predictive prophecy, that as God gives and intends to speak to his immediate audience, to his people of that day, he then expands what he's speaking about, and he gives an eschatological prophecy as well, or predictive word. And he speaks about Jesus Christ, about the Son of God. If you look at at a lot of Predictive prophecy, you'll see this feature. God has an immediate intent to fulfill, and then he has an eschatological intent to fulfill as well. And this is what we see in Isaiah. As Isaiah has a son through his wife, a young woman, technically a virgin in the Hebrew, God then, three years later, conquers the two kings, or by three years, conquers the kings, destroys them, and they're no longer a threat to Judah. And what God said would happen, he did it. But as God fulfilled that, then for our sake, he says, now, I'm speaking about Christ as well, in a more full way, in a more significant way. A virgin who has never known a man will give birth to my son. The Holy Spirit will work in such an extraordinary way that she will conceive without any relations with a man. What God does through this prophetic word is to give us his defense, his evidence. I said I would do this. 
And indeed, I fulfilled this. And one reason that we know that it wasn't simply a son of Isaiah's day, but was someone more extraordinary, is if you look at the context of Isaiah 7, the greater context speaks of someone else. In chapter 9 and verse 6, which is the greater prophetic context of Isaiah, this is how this child is described. For to us a a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Pretty extraordinary person, right? Not just a son, not just a man, but mighty God as well. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. And so we see that as Isaiah predicts something that God would do immediately. He's also pointing to something that would happen much later, about 780, or 680 years later, through his son's conception and birth. I was a skeptic for many, many years an atheistic skeptic. There were Christians who would come to me and they would tell me about the stories of the Bible. I remember you know, someone coming to me and telling me about the virgin birth of Christ. And it's like, are you kidding? How can you believe these things? It was actually, as they said, well, I don't expect you to, to believe what I say, but here's the deal. God said that this would happen hundreds of years before it actually did. And it's only God who can predict that something very specific would happen. In fact, over 300 predictions of who Christ would be and the events surrounding his life, there are over 300 of these things, very specific, where he would be born and all kinds of other things. These are found hundreds of years before they happen, and they're all fulfilled in this one person. It was actually the prophetic word that stopped me and said, you know what? This is extraordinary. This is amazing. And I started, I started researching this. It's like, man, you know, here, here in Isaiah, it talks about this birth of this extraordinary person. And, and, you know, a skeptic isn't easily convinced. And so I was like, okay, when was, when was Isaiah written? And do we have any evidence that this stuff is, is for real. And then I, then I came across the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and found out that there's two complete copies of Isaiah that were dated scientifically to at least 150 years before the coming of Christ. And as I was looking at this evidence, it's like, whoa, this is amazing. And I became convinced what we have here is indeed the Word of God. There is no other religion in the world that has a book like this book. There's a lot of religious books. Every religion has has their own book. But no other religion has predicted prophecy 
so many hundreds and, and, and literally thousands of predictive prophecies like this book has. You know what that does for me today? When I'm struggling to believe God's word, <laughs> you, do, you, you face that yourself? <laughs> you know, it's hard to believe that God's word is true. I remember, hey, <laughs> is God's word sure? It is. And my heart is correct and say, no, God's, God made it very clear that this is his book. He has spoken in this book, and I have to believe it. I have to trust it. That's one of the messages, I believe, of the incarnation for us as believers. This is an extraordinary book. And if you're here this morning, and you, you haven't come to faith in Christ yet, and, and you have these kind of struggles. I would love to talk with you. I really would. Because I had to work through that. <laughs> I had to deal with that skepticism. But this is an extraordinary book with specific prophecies that say this is what God is going to do. And then God does it. And only God can do that, right? <laughs> That's right. There's other messages which we need to hear as... We, we consider the incarnation of Christ. Very simply, the incarnation is one of the most extraordinary events, not because it's supernatural, but because of what's actually taking place. I mean, think about this. The incarnation is the highest one the Son of God, laying aside His glory in order to rescue the lowest ones. Those who have turned from God and those who have dishonored God that He might rescue us. It is the highest one doing the lowest thing, the Son of God taking on flesh for the purpose of what? Paying for our sins. The incarnation is God going to whatever lengths were necessary for you and me to no longer live in death and darkness. It is God bowing down in order to speak on our level. It is the greatest expression of love ever demonstrated. The highest bowing to the need of the lowest. The pure taking the place with the impure the one who deserves our praise, leaving his exalted place in order to enter a place of condemnation and undeserved ridicule. This is what's taking place in Christ's incarnation. God has loved us in an extraordinary way. I'd like to make just a couple of applications as we consider how extraordinary Christ's love is as he did this for you and for me. How should we love as we have been loved in such a way? I think first of all, how should we love God? How should we love God?
When I think of loving God and saying no to sin, one of the strongest compelling reasons for me to say no to that sin is a love which is undeserved. I know that uh, my time is, is running out here, but I, w- I want to tell you, I want to illustrate a, a story, and, and hopefully I, I trust it will illustrate the, the way God has loved us. When I was uh, 14 years old, uh, or about to turn 14, I had a birthday party, and as usual, my, my family gathered in our, our living room, and we had our dining room, and we had supper, and, and uh, you know, we, we always did the same thing. And I, I found out that uh, in, in the Hamster, Hamster and, and uh, Katinsky family, tradition is very important. I mean, and, and the problem is, if it happens once, it's tradition. <laughs> well, in the Michaels family, it's kind of the same way. You know, we, we do it once this way, and then, you know, it just seems like we always do it this way. So we, we had supper, and after we had supper with the two grandparents and, and, and uh, my sisters, I had three sisters, no brothers. Uh, hopefully you feel sorry for me, because that, that was a rough life. It really was. But, but here I was, turning 14, and, and I had one, one thing that I, I wanted more than anything else. As I was growing up, I wanted to, to have a mini bike. We, we lived on the edge of the country, and, and, and so some of my other friends had mini bikes, and oh, it looks like so much fun. And it's just like, oh, if I could just get a mini bike, that would be the best. And so we ate supper and got finished with supper, and my parents brought out the gifts and put them on the table, and it, it looked kind of sparse. Like, wow. You know, you know as, as usual, my grandparents gave me a shirt and a pair of socks. And that was cool. But, uh, and, and I don't know, I don't know what my sisters gave me. You know, maybe a bag of coal, who knows. But I, I got to the end of my, pre- the, my presence and it's like, oh man, that's kind of a disappointing birthday. And uh, I was just kind of pondering all of this and, and my dad looked at me, and he knew what I was thinking. And he said, Paul, your presence in the garage. <laughs> and it was amazing, because I ran out of the garage, and like, oh, man, look at this, a mini bike, you know, shining blue and silver. It was, it was so incredible. And, and, and so I, you know, he said, now, you know, you got to put on your helmet, and, you know, be careful. This is how it all works. And for Two hours, I drove up and down Oak Drive on my mini bike. And my dad finally came out and said, hey, you know, you got to come in because the neighbors are about ready to kill us. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, it's, it, here's what I experienced, though. Something that I never thought I would get, my parents gave me. And as I experienced that kind of love, you know, anything they asked me to do, <laughs> sure, you know, no problem, I could do that. Because you have shown me an amazing love by getting me this mini bike. And how much 
greater, my brothers and sisters. Has God loved us? We could not have delivered ourselves from the penalty of sin. There was nothing that we could do. And out of his love, he left heaven and came to earth, took our place, and paid our penalty. And so, are we a people who know and believe the extraordinary love that God has shown to us? And do we live lives in this way? Sin wars against our soul. Serious things. Things that are hard to overcome. It's only as we look upon Christ and believe what he has done for us that we are able to say, no, I have been loved with an extraordinary love. So I will say no to this because of the way God has loved me. That's grace, and that's the power of grace. Let me make one more application to this, and it's simply this. How do you and I care for the lost? And I believe that this is a very legitimate application to the incarnation of Christ because the incarnation of Christ was really for one purpose. And that was to rescue a lost world. God did what was necessary in order to come into this world and accomplish what was required by his justice in order that he might forgive you and me. And as God sent his son for this purpose, to rescue the lost. We see his extraordinary love for his world. And how are we affected by that love that we would go out and and care for the world? Let me close with just this one verse in Colossians chapter one. It's really a shocking statement When I first read this years ago as a young believer, I had to read over it again and again because it's like, what What did Paul just say? In Colossians 1 and verse 24, Paul speaks of his own gospel ministry and he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that was, that was the statement. It's like, hold on, what in the world? I didn't know there was anything lacking in Christ's death, in his afflictions. Let me read that again. Let me try to understand this. I am, fulfill, or I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. What Paul is saying is, yes, Christ accomplished our salvation. <laughs> but one way that we fulfill what Christ died for is to enter into the same kind of suffering 
for the sake of fulfilling, of accomplishing why Jesus Christ died. I want to encourage us in this way. The incarnation was the beginning of God's rescue mission. His death and resurrection was the accomplishment of God's rescue mission, but the completion of God's rescue mission hasn't happened yet. There's still others who need Christ. And like the Apostle Paul, Christ is calling us to enter into the same kind of suffering that we might fill up the whole reason why he came to earth and died for us. Are you and I willing to sacrifice and to suffer that others might know the love of Christ? Let's pray together. Lord God, as as we think of what really was taking place here, as you give us eyes to see, as you give us grace to, to believe, Lord, it is extraordinary. And as we were this morning, we, we grow even more as we look into your word, Lord, we want to be, we want to worship you. Lord, how amazing. How amazing you are and your love is that you would lay aside the glories of heaven. You would lay aside your supremacy. You you would lay aside being in the presence of praise because you saw our need. And you humbled yourself. Lord, I pray that as you humbled yourself, that you would grow in us that same kind of humility as we live with one another, as we love one another. Lord, even as you say in Philippians 2, that we would, that we would not consider our own interests but we would consider the interests of others. Lord, I also pray that you would continue to stir in our hearts a care for the lost as you cared for our lostness. When we were without Christ, Lord, thank you that you came and you took our place and you lived all your life facing the same temptations as we face and yet without sin that you might fulfill all righteousness for us. And then, Lord, to offer to your Father a sinless sacrifice. What extraordinary love. May you warm our hearts with this love that we might have your heart for those who still need you. Lord, we really do pray for this, that it would grow in our hearts because of the way you've loved us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.